Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Good Monday morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. What a weekend. Yeah, if you blinked what or perhaps had a normal life during the weekend, you missed an incredible and potentially seismic 36 hours. That's exactly right. We're going to get into all of it. What happened in Russia over the weekend? Let's get started with five things to know for this Monday, June 26th. The big question, after the revolt in Russia, what happens now? How strong is Russian President Vladimir Putin's grasp on power? And where is the leader of the Wagner Group who threatened to march his mercenary army to Moscow? Russia says he remains under investigation for inciting an armed rebellion. Plus, Ukraine looking to take advantage of that chaos. It says it's gaining ground around Bakhmut as it takes out air targets overnight. Also here in the United States, severe weather across the country. 90 million people, mostly on the East Coast, under a threat of severe storms. 50 million people still experiencing that extreme heat. And take a look at this twister sending debris flying in Indiana. Also this morning, the U.S. Coast Guard is conducting the highest level of investigation possible into that catastrophic loss of the Titan submersible. This questions mount over past red flags reportedly ignored by OceanGate CEO. And what if you could just take a pill and lose 15% of your body weight? A new study says it's possible. CNN This Morning starts right now. Well, as Phil said, if you blinked this weekend, you missed a seismic shift, potentially permanent. Is it temporary? What happens to Vladimir Putin in Russia? The best part is we have really smart people (laughs) hanging out for the next three hours to answer all of our questions. All of them. That's exact. Every single one. All of them. They're around (laughs) us. You'll see them in a moment. But this morning, there are growing doubts over Vladimir Putin's grip on power. After 36 hours of absolute chaos, the mercenary rebellion inside Russia appears to be over for now, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions. We have not heard much from Putin after the mutiny that threatened his regime. Another big question this morning, where is the Wagner mercenary boss who led the revolt? Yevgeny Prigozhin's current whereabouts unknown after he suddenly halted this march toward Moscow and supposedly struck a deal with the Kremlin to go into exile in Belarus. There are some of... The, the last images right here of Prigozhin leaving a military headquarters that his troops had seized in southern Russia. Now, at this moment, this is what Moscow looks like. Those live pictures. The city was bracing for the worst over the weekend, but now the mayor says all security restrictions have been lifted. This morning, NATO Secretary General said the rebellion is proof that Putin's invasion of the Ukraine is a, quote, big strategic mistake. We have team coverage covering all angles. The best of CNN correspondents on the ground in Russia. In Ukraine, Matthew Chance is in Moscow. Nick Peyton Walsh is in Kyiv. Arlette Signs on the North Lawn of the White House. And our experts are in the studio with us. Well, we want to begin with Matthew Chance, who is live in Russia. Uh, Matthew, it was a, a pretty incredible weekend. Where do things stand? What's the sense on the ground there this morning? 
Yeah, I mean, what a weekend. I mean, it's been absolutely breathtaking with events unfolding really at breakneck speed. But, but as you mentioned, I mean, the situation on the face of it seems to have calmed down uh, massively. Um, the emergency security measures that were imposed in Moscow as those rebel Wagner mercenary forces made their way uh, towards the city at the weekend, well, they've now been lifted. Um, but, you know, and, and the territory, I have to say, that had been basically occupied by Wagner, uh, amazingly, uh, in the south of the country in particular, is now firmly back, apparently, under Kremlin control. But, you know, coupled with the relief that obviously many people in Moscow feel that even more bloodshed has been avoided, is a real anxiety about uh, what's been unleashed now by that incredible uh, couple of days at the weekend here in Russia. It's been a weekend of chaos in Russia. An armed insurrection threatening the Russian state ending as suddenly as it began. It kicked off on Friday with allegations of a deadly strike on a Wagner military camp in Ukraine. The leader of the Russian mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, accusing his rivals in the defence ministry of ordering the attack. Russian officials denied any role. But a furious Prigozhin, who's repeatedly accused the military of mishandling the war in Ukraine, vowed revenge. Those who destroyed our guys today, along with tens of thousands of lives of Russian soldiers, will be punished. I ask no one to put up any resistance. Justice for the troops will be restored, and then justice for all of Russia. The threat of violence was a shocking, unprecedented challenge, putting Wagner on a collision course with the Kremlin. A criminal case was launched, accusing Prigozhin of insurrection. But that didn't stop him. By Saturday morning, Wagner forces had moved into the Russian city of Rostov-on-Don in the country's south, taking over a key military facility there with little resistance. More Wagner forces continued north towards Moscow, shooting down Russian military aircraft that challenged them and ratcheting up the stakes as the Russian president addressed the nation. This is a blow to Russia, to our people, all those who deliberately chose the path of treachery, who prepared an armed mutiny, who chose the path of blackmail and terrorist methods will face inevitable punishment and will answer both to the law and to our people. The slow progress of the Wagner column, roads were dug up along the route, military checkpoints set up outside the city as Moscovites braced for bloodshed. But it was a confrontation that never came. Behind the scenes, a deal was brokered involving the leader of neighbouring Belarus. Prigozhin would halt the Wagner advance and supposedly leave for exile in Belarus. An audio message confirmed his forces would stand down. Therefore, realising all the responsibility for the fact that Russian blood will be shed from one of the sides, we turn our columns around and leave in the opposite direction to the field camps, according to the plan. The Kremlin later confirmed grievous criminal charges would be dropped as part of the deal. But as Wagner forces dispersed on Saturday, crowds in Rostov cheered them a worrying sign for the Kremlin that Prigozhin's short-lived rebellion had struck a popular chord. The big question now in Russia is what will this unprecedented challenge to Putin's rule unleash?
Well, indeed. And there's also questions uh, this morning in Russia about the whereabouts and the fate of Yevgeny Prigozhin, because he hasn't turned up yet as far as we're aware in Belarus. His office says he's currently out of contact and won't answer any questions um, until he's back in sort of telephone signal range, uh, whatever that means. Um, And it's emerged on Russian uh, state media uh, today that the insurrection charges that the Kremlin said had been dropped against him may not have been dropped after all. And so a great deal of confusion about his fate and his his whereabouts. Matthew Chance, thank you so much for this and for your reporting on this all weekend. Now we want to turn to Nick Payton Wall. She's live for us in Kyiv. Nick, how are Ukrainians reacting to the chaos they've seen in Russia over the course of the weekend? Yeah, I mean, the initial glee we certainly felt over the weekend, that is uh, turning into questions about what can be realised on the battlefield. Now, over the weekend, we heard Ukrainian officials talking about progress still around the hugely symbolic city of Bakhmut that Wagner had lost and fought so many to get the hold of the city centre of and suggestions of continued progress in the south. Minimal details. But again, this morning, uh, the commander of the land forces here, Alexander Sirsky, saying that there is continued progress around Bakhmut. Now, we were hearing from Russian state media suggestions that 3,000 Chechen rebel fighters, sorry, Chechen mercenary fighters working for Russia may have been redeployed to help defend Moscow. They may have come from that Bakhmut area, but I think Ukrainian officials are still digesting exactly what the changes in Russian forces after this weekend may mean for the front lines themselves. No obvious signs of change, but Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, what a weekend he must have had, spent the back part of it talking to President Biden, other allies. Here's what he had to say about what we've just witnessed. The longer Russian aggression lasts, the more degradation it causes in Russia itself. One of the manifestations of this degradation is that Russian aggression is gradually returning to its home harbor. In our conversations with the leaders, we have exchanged our assessments of what is happening in Russia. We see the situation in the same way and know how to respond. Now, clearly, utter chaos in Moscow, but Ukraine faces a lot of choices here. Do they let this continue to play out? Because, look, we haven't seen Vladimir Putin appear live on television since uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin decided to turn his column of armor around. Is there more turmoil to come? And therefore, might it be wise for Ukraine to let that play out and worsen? Could they potentially, if they threw everything at the front line right now, provide an existential threat that could even potentially bring people to gather around Vladimir Putin? Because of the potential for a loss in the war here and also too the other issue they face you can't simply deploy tens of thousands of troops in one direction overnight it will take time for them to work out where the weaknesses are but really at the end of the day the Ukrainian counteroffensive has been about pushing Moscow into complicated choices about its priorities on the front line and now there's obviously a weakness at the top and maybe Kiev want to force difficult decisions when Russia frankly is currently struggling to work out how it recently defended its own capital back to you. Yeah, a, a consistent state of shaping and probing and part of that counteroffensive, whether or not they find new openings. Still an open question. Nick Payton Walsh, great reporting as always. Thanks so much. Nick was remarkable reporting, you know, Saturday in the middle of all of this. And let's bring in our experts and talk a lot more about where this goes from here. CNN Global Affairs Analyst Kim Dozier, CNN Political and National Security Analyst David Sanger, and retired U.S. Army Major Mike Lyons. Everyone's at the table. We appreciate it very much this morning. And David, let me begin with you because Nick Peyton Walsh, in the middle of his reporting from Kiev this weekend, in the middle of this chaos, wrote a really fascinating piece. And in it, he said it's impossible to imagine Putin's regime will ever go back to its previous heights of control from this moment. But what does this mean actually for Russia and for Putin? 
Well, we have to start, Poppy, by saying we don't know. But we do know that if you think about everything that we conceived about Vladimir Putin last week and what we think about on Monday morning, it's different, right? Last week, I was um, seeing a senior administration official and we were musing about the fact, this was probably early in the week, that we had not really seen any of the cracks in the Putin regime that many had expected, mm-hmm. okay? By this morning, boy, have we seen them. Um, it's a really open question. How did Prigozhin not only plan this out, which U.S. intelligence, we think, had some, some this sense was your, of. New York Times reporting and CNN reporting that as of Wednesday, gotcha. there was a sense that this was going to happen. That, that something was happening. So they were tapped in in some way to Prigozhin's plans. They didn't do anything with that piece of data, but they were tapped into it. But he got down to, you know, 150, 200 miles to Moscow, apparently largely unopposed, which may explain why the deal came together. So if you're Putin and you're naturally paranoid, what's the old saying? Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean Prigozhin's not out to get you, right? <laughs> so, uh, so if you're naturally paranoid, he must now be wondering what it is he does to reassert control. And that is essentially the biggest worry that the administration has right now, because Putin in a corner feeling as if his own regime may be threatened is a lot more dangerous than Putin simply invading Ukraine. Kim, I think the thing, there's about 100 questions that I'm trying to get my head around right now. And I also think that this isn't necessarily a a binary type of situation. There are so many different elements and layers. We were talking about it before the show. Um, You know, Prigozhin is a critical player in Russian private military operations in Africa, in Libya, in Syria. You know, he leads these operations, not just in Ukraine. But the idea of, to David's point, coming in unopposed, the, the Russian military not doing anything to for the most part, uh, as they went through this process. But also, I think there's a natural assumption in Putin's Russia, if you do what just happened, you shouldn't be alive anymore. He's taken people out for a lot less. Why is he, to the extent we know, we haven't seen him in several days, why is he still alive? Why was a deal struck here? I think we have to measure Prigozhin's importance by how Putin sees him, that Putin let him get away with this. Um, Prigozhin is Russia's every man, and he is the man that every Russian wants to be in many ways. The um, street fighter that came up from nothing and became a billionaire and then is there on the front lines with the troops and saying things that no one else dares to say. So in that sense, um, I think Putin understood that taking him out now would make him a martyr and damage Putin's own regime and the war in Ukraine permanently. Whereas what he's now probably got to do is we wake up to news this morning that the court case against Prigozhin hasn't been dropped. Which yeah. was fascinating, by the way. Exactly. And like, wait, wait, wait what? <laughs> well, so what I think we're going to see now is this long, drawn-out public campaign to slowly take Prigozhin apart. Moscow's got the goods on him. I think we're going to start seeing um, court case uh, data presented like... Here are the bribes he paid. Here's video of someone that, you know, I, I, it's an early morning audience. Sorry, this is um, a little bit triggering. But this is a guy who's known to assassinate people with um, heavy gardening equipment. Uh, who knows what kind of thing Moscow could release that slowly tears him down in the eyes of the people. Then he can be taken out. But if they do it right now... Putin knows that he'll look like one of the guys in the dark suits that's taking bribes, as Prigozhin alleges all of his Russian defense officials are. 
Mike, Russia has the largest nuclear arsenal in the world. We can show people just to compare. It's, it's just ahead of the United States and then everyone else, every other nuclear armed power is way below that. Obviously, Putin is in a corner. I think David put it really well. Russia is less stable than it was certainly on Friday. Secretary Blinken told Dan Abash yesterday the U.S. has seen no change in, in Russia's nuclear position. But should people be more worried about a nuclear Russia right now? And the probability is zero that they wouldn't use them. But the, I would say no. I think that there's a lot that has to have happen prior to that happening, especially in Ukraine. Tactical nukes, we know that they've moved some of them to Belarus. But we've got pretty good insight on what uh, what they can do there. But from a you know a global nuclear, it's unthinkable. And, and I'd like to think that we're not at that spot. Can, yeah. I just also want to ask what um, the reporting that David mentioned in the, in the New York Times and CNN has a reporting, too, that intelligence officials in the West knew about this in some shape or fashion since Wednesday and didn't do anything about it. A couple things, though. I think we have to keep our fingers off it and let this happen and, and watch it, because if we get too involved with it, especially with regard to what Russia thinks, then, then he uses that story to go back to his people and say, look, NATO is involved, the United States is doing it. So I think there's a certain amount of hands up. You know, your enemy's making a mistake, let that happen. But this issue about Prigozhin you know, being the charges still there, that could be nothing more than a signal to him also that you better keep the deal that we made. It's still it's not necessarily they're going to take him down. I still think he's an earner. He has uh, influence in Africa where Russia's trying to get rare earth minerals. Then they have a heads up on that. So so I think that this could be the early part. To Kip's point, it could 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 go badly if he doesn't stick with the, the terms that were negotiated. But however, this could just be a signal to him that said you better stick with the program that we have. Everyone's. We don't know what those terms were. That's one of the really you know, we're yeah. talking about a deal whose whose details we don't know. There is an assumption, and it could be completely wrong, that Prigozhin would not have stopped this unless he had an understanding that his mortal enemy here, the defense this secretary, Joygu, is, yes. is gone, right? right. And in that's some what Marco way. Rubio tweeted over yeah. the weekend. That right. That had to have been a deal made. We, we assume so, but it's just an assumption. Um, on the nuclear weapons, I agree with Mike. The, the strategic weapons, which we worry about because they're aimed at us, are one thing. One of the concerns over the weekend when we didn't know what units were going to stay loyal to Putin and what were going to go to Prigozhin was some of those units up near the border have tactical weapons. And so the concern was briefly until this all ended, who has got control over the commanders if they flipped to go to Prigozhin? This is the first time I can remember in my lifetime that there was concern about who actually had control of the weapons. It was brief. It turned out not to be an issue. Let's hope it remains not an issue. But that's the core of the concern. Yeah. Everyone stick with us, okay? Because also we'll talk about what the White House is doing and saying. President Biden and his team are closely monitoring these events unfolding in Russia. We have new reporting this morning on who President Biden spoke to and how he's responding. And also this morning, the Coast Guard officially ending its search and rescue for the Titan submersible. An investigation is currently underway. What officials are now looking at. Stay tuned. That is a live look at the White House this morning. We're getting new details about President Biden's reaction to the insurrection slash mutiny slash we're not totally sure 
and Russia. The president spoke with several world leaders in the hours after the rebellion, including Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. CNN's Arlette Sines is live from the North Lawn at the White House. And Arlette, what was the message President Biden was trying to convey to allies in this very fluid moment? Well, Phil, President Biden spent the weekend working the phones with allies as the White House tried to get a handle on the impact of this seemingly short-lived rebellion in Russia. The president huddled with his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, over the weekend. And officials I spoke with said that one of the president's priorities was trying to consult with these allies who have been central to the Western response to Russia's war in Ukraine. That is why he placed these phone calls to Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and also the leaders of France, Germany, the United Kingdom and Canada. And one of the messages in those conversations was essentially to lay low, allow the situation in Russia to play out. They've also talked about uh, the U.S. and the West's longstanding support for Ukraine throughout this war. And it really speaks to this deliberately quiet and cautious strategy that we've seen from the White House over the weekend. We have yet to hear from President Biden. And officials say that part of the reason is because they don't want to give Vladimir Putin any pretense, any reason to suggest that the West would was trying to interfere in this matter. Now, the first reaction did come from Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday when he told our colleague Dan Bash that these events were extraordinary and that he did not believe they were yet completely resolved, describing it as a moving picture. But Blinken did note that the events, the, the rebellion, showed that there are some cracks in Vladimir Putin's hold on power in Russia. One of the big questions this White House will be facing today and in the days to come is how exactly this will impact the larger war in Ukraine and also broader the impact it has on Putin's power in Russia as they are now beginning to see um, some fissures uh, amidst this rebellion. At our let signs, uh, a lot of late nights in the National Security Council across the street in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building and with CNN's White House team. Great reporting as always, Arlette. Thanks. Okay, let's bring back Kim Dozier, David Sanger, Major Mike Lyons. Kim, I want um, to play for you what I thought was a very interesting answer from Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday to Dana Bash. Here it is. Do you believe that this is the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin? I don't want to speculate about that. Uh, but what's so uh, striking about it is it's internal. The fact that you have from within uh, someone directly questioning Putin's authority, directly questioning the premises that, uh, upon which he launched this aggression uh, against Ukraine, that in and of itself is um, something very, uh, very powerful. It adds cracks. Um, where those go, when they get there, too soon to say. Too soon to say, for mm. sure. But I thought it was interesting that on the show with Danny yesterday, David Petraeus also pointed out, you know, if Putin were to lose power, who's to say someone more dictatorial, who may be even more feared if Prigozhin had been successful, wouldn't just fill that void? Yeah, Prigozhin is not the democratic answer to right. Russia's problems. Um, what, one of the problems, though, is uh, Putin has not allowed anyone to develop popularity, uh, leadership, leadership skills to take the reins after him, which is one of the in fears. In fact, he's imprisoned people like Navalny, who it, have gained it, a following. Exactly. So uh, he allowed Prigozhin to develop only as useful as a useful tool. Mm. Um, one of the questions now is what happens with the Wagner group, which was run a bit like uh, a mafia enterprise, um, personality based, but operates a bit like 
Iran uses its Revolutionary Guard as an arm of foreign policy, as an executor of state policy. If you're in Mali right now and you've got a contract with Wagner and we're counting on them to train your forces to control uh, terrorism in that country, do you trust them right now? Do you trust what Moscow is sending your way? You're watching this mm. internal um, rebellion and saying, is is Putin the strong man I thought he was? Now, there was an, another part of Secretary Blinken's answer I thought was, was really interesting, and he did this on several networks. It was, he said, 16 months ago, we were wondering yeah. how quickly Vladimir Putin would take Kiev, right? This Saturday, we were wondering whether he could defend Moscow. So while they were being careful not to get, you know, too in too deep, they were putting the knife in a little bit, mm. saying your, um, your rule is, in fact, in jeopardy here. I hadn't heard U.S. officials sort of do that before. And remember, it's only two weeks from now that you're going to see all of those international leaders in Lithuania, right on Russia's border, at the NATO summit with President Biden. And you've got to think that that is going to drive Putin a little bit nuts. Yeah, and this actually gets to something that I've been thinking about, Major Lyons, in the sense of at the NATO summit, which is a critical one, has long been circled as a critical summit, given the fact that Ukraine is starting its counteroffensive. Ukraine needs to continue to show progress to ensure the Western support is maintained. Does this end up bolstering that case to some degree? We've seen cracks, is what you know, Western leaders may say. We need to double down on the military support we're providing at this point. Yeah, no, I think so. I think, for example, that uh, Ukraine military will do much better when the, the more NATO equipment arrives in the coming months, survivability of the crews. You know, they're keeping their heads down right now, watching what's going across the border. But that group, when they meet uh, in Vilnius, is going to send that, project that more message of unity. And the, again, the equipment that the West has been sending is much more survivable. It's going to give the Ukraine military that better advantage. And do you feel like in the near term, you know, with the shaping, the probing, a slow, very slow process, which wasn't unexpected, by the way, that this opens doors in the near term? We have to see. I, they've been hamstrung without air superiority on the ground. They, they've got to focus on attacking Russian units and not trying to take real estate. They, you know, they, they take these towns and then we find these towns are completely wrecked and destroyed. I know it, it improves morale that they're gaining ground, so to speak. But for them to win, they've got to get through multiple defensive belts and then attack Russian troops, get them not confident in their positions, get them to retreat, get them to surrender, that'll be victory for them. Thank you, guys. I've only had like 3% of my questions. Don't go far. Yes, we have long lists here. (laughs) Don't go far. Stay with us, everyone. Also, this this morning, the Coast Guard launching an investigation into the implosion of the Titan. And we are hearing this morning from the woman who lost her husband and her son on that doomed submersible. Hear her describe her last moments with her loved ones. We just hugged and joked actually because Shazana was so excited to go down. He was like a little child. When we passed the 96 hours mark, that's when I lost hope. And that's when when I even then I sent a message to my family on shore. I said, I'm preparing for the worst. 
That is a woman, a wife, a mother. She lost both her son and her husband in the Titan submersible tragedy last week, reflecting on the agony of waiting for the news of their death. Suleiman and Chazada Dawood died in that sub when it catastrophically imploded. Christine Dawood told the BBC News that she was supposed to go on that expedition to see the sunken Titanic, but her son was so excited she let him take her place. Meantime, the Coast Guard announced it's leading the investigation into what caused the implosion that killed all five people on board. Our national correspondent, Miguel Marquez, joins us live from St. John's in Newfoundland. Miguel, what else do we know about this investigation? Well, there's going to be a lot of investigating of this incident. I do want to point out, Poppy, that the ship that Christine Dawood and the Titan was on is now ported and docked at its home port outside of uh, Horizon Maritime offices here. It was across the harbor at a Coast Guard port for the weekend where they collected evidence. Uh, Canadian Coast Guard uh, collected evidence and took some statements. There are as many as six different inquiries and investigations into this uh, incident. The U.S. Coast Guard has announced its own investigation, a Marine Board investigation, the highest level investigation it can do. Uh, the TSB, the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, has an uh, investigation it has started. The National Transportation Safety Board of the U.S. has started an investigation. Uh, the French and British Marine accident uh, agencies have started investigations into this. And the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, a sort of national police of Canada, says it will look to see if there were any uh, laws broken or anything criminal uh, with regard to this incident. So this is going to be discussed and coordinated uh, with against uh, with all of these agencies on an international basis going forward. Uh, the, the first part of that started this weekend with the Canadian Transportation Safety Board taking uh, statements from uh, people who were on that ship uh, behind me, uh, getting the data recorders, getting any video, any audio and any data that they can from that sub to the ship uh, so that they can begin that investigation and quite likely share it with other agencies worldwide to, to look into not only how this happened, why it happened, but also going forward is there are there ways to prevent this, especially the U.S. Coast Guard interested in that. They spent the money, they said, to pay for it all and will pay for it all as they do with every one of these uh, situations. But now they have to figure out whether there's ways to avoid these sort of situations. Yeah, Back to you. Ever happening again. Miguel, really appreciate the continued reporting from you up there. Thank you. Well, the Wagner Group's weekend rebellion in Russia showing clear cracks in Russian President Vladimir Putin's grip on power. How Ukrainian forces might be adjusting their war strategy in response. That's coming up next. This is a video of Russian military plane that was reportedly shot down by the Wagner Group in southern Russia. The Russian state media reports that several helicopters and military communications planes were brought down during that brief 36-hour rebellion. Beginning Prigozhin, who apparently struck a deal to leave Russia for Belarus, well, he has not been seen yet. I want to go back to Major Mike Lyons. I think one of the things we're trying to figure out right now is what actually happens to Prigozhin's forces, to the Wagner Group that has been so critical mm -hmm. for Russia's efforts up to this point. Yeah, all, all we know that they, they were here in Rostov Abdam, where they started their uh, insurgency, where their mutiny got to a certain spot up, up uh, along the road, threatened Moscow. But now we really don't know what's going to make of them. But they have great equipment. They've got great uh, tanks. They have planes. They have, they have to be fed. They have to be watered. So we're not really sure what happens. I don't 
don't see them joining the regular Russian forces in Ukraine or in uh, on those front lines there. These are not those kind of troops. They're not uh, interested in getting in any more into the fight. They've, they've been out of Bakhmut, this area here. They've been out of there for about uh, six to eight weeks right now. So they haven't been in the fight for that long. Which is an important point. People associate them with Bakhmut because of their very outsized role in that long running battle. Um, yet they have been pulled back. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for Ukrainian forces on the ground right now? So I think Ukraine forces have to do two things. Number one, get as much intelligence from the West as they possibly can to find out where these cracks are in these in these places, where where specifically along this line here, where they could find areas that they can exploit. Um, there's significant bands of defensive operations there with mines, with trenches, all the things. We, they're going to need likely more equipment, things to help them clear there. But they've got to find out where those weak, weak spots are and, and make sure that they can exploit them because they don't have air superiority. They're doing a counteroffensive very much hamstrung. They need it. And then the, sec- and then the second thing is bring in more of those Western tanks and that equipment that's going to help their troops survive. Survivability of their forces right now is number one. They don't want to do make the mistake Russia did by putting their troops in harm's way unnecessarily. Okay, we're going to keep this conversation going. You and I are going to walk back to the desk. Don't trip. But Poppy and our experts are still Don't with trip. us right now. because That's still... usually my job. Anyway, <laughs> you guys are going to be fine. <laughs> um, can I? Yeah, it says Phil. Oh, it does. Okay. All right, sweet. So all right, we're bringing back in Kim and David. Major Lyons is still with us right now. Um, David, we, we flicked at it towards the end a couple minutes ago. Um, the uh, two Russian defense leaders that have become the arch nemesis, nemesis of, uh, of Yevgeny Prigozhin over the course of the last several months. It's been a shocking several months of him repeatedly going on to social media and just eviscerating the two most powerful military leaders in Vladimir Putin's military. What happens to them now? Really great question, because we don't know what was in that deal that got Prigozhin to turn around. And maybe it was that they get ousted. So the first question was, why did Putin put up with this? I mean, people who go on and and put a blog on or put a telegram message out critical of Vladimir Putin get, you know, thrown in the gulag and we don't hear about them for a long time. Prigozhin was on every single day beating up on these guys, saying they're incompetent, saying they're corrupt, basically suggesting he should have their job. And Putin put up with it until this weekend when suddenly he calls him a traitor. The second interesting question is, if, he, if Putin does replace Shoyu, the defense minister, or Gerasimov, the somewhat famed uh, commander of, of the military, who does he put in his place? And do they have a strategy that's any better than the one that they've been executing on so far? And it's not clear to me that either of those you know, applies at this point. Gerasimov, particularly important, He's the one who laid out the nuclear strategy for employment of nuclear weapons by Russia back in in 2020 and earlier than that. And of course, one of the potential uses of a preemptive nuclear weapon is if the regime appears threatened. We've never seen that until this weekend. Shoigu was more likely to be a fall guy because he doesn't have the uh, military pedigree that Gerasimov has. Uh, In terms of answering your question of why did Putin let Prigozhin mouth off like this day after day after day? I think Putin is self-aware enough to understand he's only getting the, the best news from his hierarchy. And Prigozhin was a useful tool for all this time to nag his commanders. Prigozhin, he might have thought, was giving him 
the real truth right. of what was happening on he the battlefield. He praised Prigozhin a month ago, right? But for Bakhmut. But finally, the bosses of the military won Putin over and said he's too much of a wild card, which is why they said, okay, Wagner has to be brought under our control. Yes, everyone in Wagner has to sign a contract by July 1st. You're going under the military's command now. And that's what Wagner, that's what Prigozhin rebelled against, because it also meant um, surely they get a cut of what has been billions going to him. So remember, their relationship is really deep, Prigozhin and, and Putin. Oh, yeah. Prigozhin began as a, a caterer, right? That's uh, the name Putin chef. Putin chef. The only time I ever saw him live was at a, um, a summit meeting that George W. Bush went to in hmm. uh, St. Petersburg, and he was there making the dinner as they were all floating down the river, happier times. You actually saw him making actually, the dinner? We, we saw him serving, oh, and wow. you've seen photographs of that. Uh, but the... Um, the fascinating thing is he then went on to run the Internet Research Agency. We all forget this and was critical to the manipulate effort to manipulate the 2016 election. That's so right. he's been there to solve a lot of problems. And to Kim's point before, he's the everyman soldier. Soldier looks at him. He endures the hardship. He dresses up. He's got he's on social media. He's out there. Yeah. Uh, you're in the foxhole. You look at your leadership and you go, are they doing the same thing mm. I'm doing? He does. And mm. I think that's what gives him legitimacy, which is why they've got to be concerned about these 25,000 Wagner yeah. forces out there. Well, and you're looking at the video right now is when they were yeah. leaving Rostov and Don and people were clapping and celebrating yeah. and cheering. Right. And that's, and I he's mean, smiling a bit there. There's a populist well. element of this that Putin has to be That's cognizant of. Right? Such a yeah. good point. Uh, stay with us, guys. We're going to continue to follow all of these stunning developments in Russia, but also this news a new daily diet pill showing weight loss results that rival the injectable drugs like Ozempic. How does it work? More CNN this morning to come after the break. This is a story that has everyone buzzing this morning. I've already gotten many text messages about it when we tease it at the top of the show. An experimental pill could help people lose weight about as effectively as popular shots like Wagovi and Ozempic. A new study found that this pill, it's from the drug maker Eli Lilly, helped users lose an average of 15% of their body weight in just three months. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is here. You know, I worry, of course, when I hear quick fix. Mm. So... This is good, same side effects as the shot. What do we know? Yeah, so right now the um, available drugs are all self-injectables given once a week. So Wagovi is the only one actually approved for weight loss. Ozempic is the same drug, but approved for type 2 diabetes. Um, and these, you have to give them as shots. And so there is a new class of drugs that's coming along in development where you take a daily pill and it essentially does the same thing. And in this new data that we're seeing from a diabetes conference over the weekend, they're actually yielding the same amount of weight loss uh, as Wagovi about 15%. And this was a study over 36 weeks. And people started out an average of 240 pounds in the study. And so on the highest dose, that was an average weight loss of 36 pounds over 36 Great. weeks. Yeah, but as you mentioned, the side effects, uh, you know, we know that the side effects for Ozempic and Wagovi can be pretty bad, nausea, uh, constipation, vomiting, things like that. And these pills are similar. What they find is that when you're dosing up to start the drug, you start at a low dose and you go to a higher one, that's when you really experience the side effects. And so so the hope is that you can kind of figure out a way to do that where you don't feel quite as bad when you're taking them. Um, can I ask the question that I've always had, which is I feel like these drugs were created for people with health risks, for people with diabetes. Yeah. This has become a very popular fad 
type of deal, uh, name your TV show or reality <laughs> show, and everybody seems to be on it. Name your celeb. Um, is yeah. Name your celeb. It is, is this moving towards that? Is that the kind of in-game goal here from a market perspective? Or is it still supposed to be focused on those who have health issues and need it? Well, the companies are very specific that they are only targeting the drug toward the FDA-approved indications, type 2 diabetes or for people with <clears throat> obesity. And there's actually a trial that's expected to have results this summer showing that uh, the hope is that this can actually reduce heart attacks and strokes in people who don't have diabetes yeah. as well. But there is a fear that this will start to be used, especially in pill form, for people who may not are need it. Are the companies vaccine. afraid of that? <laughs> well, afraid is one question. You know, it's probably Profit. not going to be too Profit. But also some potentially other good side effects, like helping people stop drinking, the things we were talking about with you yeah. a few weeks ago, stop addictive behaviors. So maybe a huge game changer on a lot of fronts, Mike. Sure. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, we're following, continuing to follow the news out of Russia. Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin may be banished to Belarus, but how did his march on Moscow affect Putin's grip on power? Our experts are standing by in studio to break it down for us. Coming up next. Well, this morning, more than 90 million people, mostly on the East Coast, are under severe storm alerts. In southern Indiana, a tornado, you can see right here, ripped through neighborhoods and damaged at least 75 homes, according to officials there. At least one person has been killed in the area. The storm's also leaving hundreds of thousands without power in the Midwest and the South. Severe thunderstorm alerts are in place with large hail and powerful winds for Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and Texas. Nearly 40 million people are also under heat alerts from Arizona to Alabama, with temperatures expected in the triple digits. We'll keep an eye on that weather. Also, our top story, what happened in Russia over the weekend. CNN This Morning continues right now. A weekend of chaos and drama in Russia. What we've seen is extraordinary, and I think you've seen cracks emerge that weren't there before. Mercenaries declared a mutiny and then called it off in under 24 hours. This is something that would have had to have been planned for a significant amount of time to be executed in the manner which it was. It was a visible rejection of his war policy by a guy who had been his ally. There's a lot that we don't we don't know precisely where Prigozhin is. He did say that Vladimir Putin's reasons for invading Ukraine were invalid, and that's something he's going to really struggle to recover from. There are growing questions about Vladimir Putin's leadership going forward and whether his iron grip on Russia is weakening. This makes him more vulnerable, arguably, than he has at any time in his two-decade rule. On the streets of a major Russian city, residents cheered Wagner fighters as they withdrew. A calamity for Russia averted, but at what cost and will it hold? These are unknowns at the moment. Good Monday morning, everyone. What a weekend it was. I didn't know where we would be as a world, given what happened in Russia come Monday morning. And I think the fascinating thing is I'm not sure the leader of Russia necessarily That's knew. True. I don't think a lot of U.S. officials necessarily knew. That's true. Um, certainly a lot of unanswered questions still as we enter this moment. And what does this all mean for the war in Ukraine? So this is where we begin. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, this morning, there is growing doubts about Vladimir Putin's grip on power after a mercenary rebellion inside Russia threatened the regime. The revolt appears to be over for now, after 36 hours of chaos and confusion. But there are still a lot of unanswered questions, such as we don't know where the Wagner mercenary group's leader is after abruptly ending that march on Moscow. Evgeny Prigozhin supposedly made a deal with the Kremlin to stand down and go into exile in Belarus. 
These, what you're looking at right now, some of the last images of Prigozhin leaving a military headquarters his troops had seized in southern Russia. We haven't heard much at all from Putin either after the most dramatic challenge ever to his 23-year rule. He had vowed to punish Prigozhin for treason. Take a live look at Moscow, where life is looking like normal, right? We didn't know it was going to be this way, given what happened on Saturday. The city was preparing for a siege, but the mayor says all security restrictions imposed over the weekend have now been lifted. Meantime, Ukrainian forces say they're making gains on the battlefield and their counteroffensive as Putin grapples with the fallout from the rebellion at home. We have live team coverage on all of these angles. Matthew Chance is in Moscow. Former CIA chief of Russia operations, Steve Hall with us at the Magic Wall, Ian Bremmer, and our other experts standing by for much analysis in studio. Matthew, let's begin with you in Russia. Russian state media reports that the investigation into Prigozhin is not over, which is notable because we were told over the weekend part of the deal was he would have to go to Belarus, but he wouldn't be charged with anything. Now that has changed. Well, it, it seems to, although there's, there's also some confusion about his fate and his whereabouts. He was meant to be going to Belarus, essentially in exile, um, as part of this deal to turn back his armoured column that was essentially threatening the Russian capital. Um, and the Kremlin said that all charges against him and his men uh, would be dropped. Um, but now uh, the TASS news agency, which is an official state-run uh, news agency here in Russia is saying that, in fact, the charges of insurrection against Yevgeny Prigozhin um, are still underway and so uh, are still continuing. And so we don't know uh, what, what's, what's going to happen, but obviously we're watching it very closely. Uh, certainly one way of watching what happens in this country is keeping an eye on uh, the newspapers and state media. You can see here, if I can hold this up to the camera, this is a newspaper called Mosco Moskovsky Komsomolets, uh, which is a very popular newspaper in this country. And uh, you can see there's a little picture in the corner there of Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man, it says, behind uh, the armed uprising. Its headline says, uh, Prigozhin has gone, but the problems remain. And it goes on inside uh, it talks about how um, it's important for the state to maintain the monopoly on legalised violence. And if it loses that monopoly, it says, then the very existence of Russia, of the Russian state, is under threat. I mean, there's all sorts of opinions being expressed in the, in the local media here. But also on television as well, state-run, uh, we were watching some of the current affairs shows that are very prominent in this country on a Sunday night, as they are in the United States. And one of them was talking about how Prigozhin had essentially failed to gain the support of the army. The, uh, the uh, Prigozhin, it said, was not supported by the people. The people went with the president, although, uh, of course, that, um, you know, doesn't tally uh, necessarily with with all the things that we've witnessed over the course of this incredible few days. All right, Matthew Chance. From Moscow. Bill. Thanks, Poppy. Thanks, Matthew Chance. Let's go ahead and talk about some of the key players in this weekend's rebellion. We want to talk to CNN national security analyst, former CIA chief of Russia operations, Steve Hall. Um, Steve, there are a lot of questions right now, a lot of confusion. A lot of people didn't think anything like this was possible. Let's start with Yevgeny Prigozhin. Sure. Who is he? 
So we got a good shot of Evgeny over there. Uh, you know, it, it, the thing that strikes me about Prigozhin is the most interesting thing is, is that he is one of the few, if any, of these players that we see in Moscow over the past couple of decades be able to make the jump from being essentially an oligarch. Remember, he started off as, you know, Putin's chef. He was basically the catering service for the, for the Kremlin which is a pretty, actually, it's like a bigger job than you might imagine. But he was able to make the jump from being that kind of guy to basically a military warlord. There's very few people in Russia who have, who have ever done that. We'll talk about Mr. Kadyrov in a minute, but he might be the, the best comparison. Really unique background. Did you expect something like this? Look, he's been very public in his attacks of military officials. He's always tried to keep the line between the military officials and President Putin. Were you surprised by what happened over the weekend? You know, not really. I mean, this has been bubbling up for the past couple of months. I mean, Prigozhin has had the gall, is, is I think how President Putin would see it, as criticizing the, you know, the Ministry of Defense, you know, all sorts of people in the, military, in the Russian military structure. Never Putin himself, because that's verboten. You don't do that in, in Russia. Uh, but I, I'm kind of surprised that you know, the, 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 the intelligence services inside of Russia didn't see this coming as quickly as it just suddenly popped up over the weekend. Your sense of the explanation for Prigozhin deciding to turn around 124 miles from Moscow with a deal that we don't really have clarity on what it actually is yet. Why? So this is, this is amazing. Just that statement that you made, 120 miles from Moscow. Okay, so he's starting off down here. This is, you know, Rostov on the Don, Rostov na Danu in Russian. He makes it all the way just a little bit past Voronezh, which these are both major cities. Right. So not only did he make it that close, so that's a surprise, but there was, there was basically no resistance. Unimpeded. Yeah, I mean, this is a major military base. This is like, you know, imagine Fort Bragg or something in the United States. Blows through that town. Voronezh is a pretty good-sized town, too. Certainly, there should have been deployed from Moscow all sorts of defenses here. Um, but for some reason, they were not. The bigger question is, why would he have stopped? Also, major military base where they're controlling the military operations Absolutely. in Ukraine at this yeah. point in time, yeah. which is fascinating. You saw the video of him sitting with the leaders of that military Absolutely. base, castigating them to some degree. Yeah. Um, we talked about how uh, Prigozhin spent months railing on two military leaders in particular. What do we know about them? Well, let's take a look at Mr. Shoigu and uh, Gerasimov here. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So what you have is here's really a contrast uh, between two guys. You have Gerasimov, who has been around essentially forever. This guy has come up through the military. He's the closest thing that I think the Russians have as a true military leader who has come up through the ranks. You talk to, you talk to American and other Western uh, senior military officials, and they'll say they can talk to a guy like they speak the same language. Shoigu, on the other hand, you know, it has never had, this is his first military experience. So you might say, okay, well, you know, our, our Secretary of Defense here in the States doesn't need to be, for example, a military leader. But Shoigu really has zero experience except for his connections to Putin. That's the most important thing. By the way, Gerasimov's not the first guy to hold this job. They've been cycling through lots of generals. Yeah, and was just shifted back over atop everything. Yeah. Uh, it's a fascinating dynamic. A lot of different players here learning about a lot of them. Steve Hall, thanks for helping us understand. Sure. Poppy? I think that's not true. All right, let's bring in. We have been having also a fascinating time listening to Steve and what he's been saying. We're going to talk a lot more about that, uh, what this all means, especially for Vladimir Putin. Let's bring in Ian Bremmer. He is a president of the Eurasia Group, also author of The Power Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Also with us at the table, CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger is back, and CNN senior political commentator, former Republican Congressman Adam Kanzinger. Thank you all for being with us. Let me begin with you. 
and how important you think it is that NATO was so in lockstep in response to this? Uh, well, given the fact that they had no idea what was going to transpire as all of these rebel troops were heading towards Moscow, they did not want to create any provocation. Uh, and what we saw was NATO was in absolute lockstep. Low-level American officials were in touch with Russia, letting them know that there was no need uh, for a high-level direct contact between the Americans and the Russians, also making it known that no NATO troops were moving while any of this was going on. The only thing that implied a level of concern around the crisis was that American officials on the ground with the embassy were all basically on lockdown in the embassy in the diplomatic complex. But that was it. No evacuation. Every member of NATO had the same talking points, were doing their damnedest to ensure that nobody was blamed for interfering uh, with what was happening domestically in inside Russia at this time. Let the Russians have their own problems. The Americans are going to continue to lead in providing defense forces to the Ukrainians, money to the Ukrainians. That's what this is all about. If that is the U.S. posture, the NATO posture, what is the posture right now for senior Russian officials as they watch what's played out? Well, one thing we can say is that um, Putin has been tested as never before. So we learned a couple of revealed things. Uh, one is that there were no defections among senior Russian military officials, senior Russian government officials, no oligarchs uh, that suddenly came out and said, we're opposed to Putin. So in that regard, not all that much has changed. On the other hand, um, a lot of people around Russia have been jailed or assassinated for a lot less than what Prigozhin has just ostensibly gotten away with. It's inconceivable to me that he remains a free man, not imprisoned, not dead why? over the I think that months. raises such an important question. Why then in the last 36 hours has Putin not ordered Prigozhin's death? Why is he still alive then? And why this deal with Belarus and Lukashenko? I think the timing was enormously problematic for Putin. I mean, if he had decided to engage in a full fight with not just Prigozhin, but all of the Wagner forces under him in Moscow, one, you don't have certainty in how the Russia's defenses are going to mm -hmm. actually act on the ground in that sense. You also are fighting front lines against the Ukrainians. They have about 11 divisions right now that are equipped and ready in position for the counteroffensive. Only about two and a half have actually started seriously fighting so far. So the Russians understand that and they'd be concerned if suddenly you've got the Kadyrov troops, the other major paramilitary loyal to Putin, they were peeling off and said they're going to fight against Wagner. Who knows what's going to happen with the Russian defense forces? If you don't cut a deal with Prigozhin at this moment, you potentially have an enormous vulnerability in your defensive front lines that so far have been holding up pretty well. So it's a matter of time. I assume it's a matter of timing and that Prigozhin, you know, is, is in a very different situation. You remember, I think it was Empire Strikes Back on Bespin when they said, <laughs> sure. pray that we do not alter the terms of the deal any further. I think that Putin is in the role of Darth Vader right now. Wow. Yeah. Congressman, you know, Ian makes a really great point. The, the unity and, I think, aligned messaging you heard from not just the U.S., but NATO countries throughout the course of the weekend um, was, I think, understandable, to some degree predictable, but it was also interesting in the sense of there could be opportunities right now for Ukrainian forces, for Western-backed Ukrainian forces. Um, do you think it is wise, the position that the U.S. and its allies have taken up? I think point? at the moment, I think during this I'll call it a crisis, opportunity, whatever, uh, that Wagner was on the march. I think the U.S. and NATO was right 
to kind of stand back. What's the old adage? If your enemy's killing themselves, don't help them. Stand back and watch. And, and so this was certainly good for Ukraine in the long run, certainly bad for Putin in the long run. So I think that was right. What I'm very concerned with, and I think a good lesson to take from this is, we don't have to, to tiptoe around Vladimir Putin. There's always been, particularly out of the administration, this idea that we can't do this one more thing because we're just going to cross Vladimir Putin's red line. We can't give him ATACMs, you know, and the UK gives him storm shadows, pretty close to the same thing. Um, That's where the administration hopefully can see what transpired over this and say, look, this red line that Putin puts out isn't really a red line. He will advance until he hits a brick wall. And in that case, and at this moment, um, doesn't mean we introduce troops to Ukraine, but it's like, let's give them what they need to win and end the war in Ukraine finally. I th- Go ahead, David. It, I mean, I, I certainly understand why it is that uh, we've discovered over time that the red lines we thought existed didn't really exist. On the other hand, you have to think Vladimir Putin has some red lines out there. And so what did we learn this weekend? We learned this weekend there are bigger cracks than we knew. And that is likely to make Putin more paranoid than he's been. And he's been pretty high on the paranoid uh, list so far. So he's going to be even more so now. We also know that at some point when he really becomes dangerous is when he thinks he's really cornered. It was interesting that when President Biden was at a fundraiser in New York in October, at the height of our concern about nuclear use, The first thing he said was the lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis is you've got to let Soviet leader then, Russian leader now, have an exit ramp. Mm -hmm. And he was quite concerned about what that was. I'm not sure that Vladimir Putin came out of this weekend with an exit ramp. And in some ways, while it may have been a short term, you know, sit around, watch this happen. I'm not sure in the long run that this makes Putin any less dangerous and it might make him more dangerous. Him dangerous we, yeah. You know, there's, yes, Putin does have a red line that's obvious at some point. And I think that's according, if you read the Russian doc, military doctrine, it's invasion of Russian territory. Now he can, he or can saber rattle. regime, he, right? Well, Here the was threatened is, from within. The regime will be threatened at some point. It'll either be threatened with a Ukrainian victory today or a Ukrainian victory in a year. Um, I don't think anybody should be standing around saying our hope, our best hope is for a stalemate here. Our best hope is for a frozen conflict because eventually Putin will be cornered. Eventually it's not going to be Prigozhin. Eventually it's going to be somebody else that marches him, some military general. So uh, one thing that is more likely now is that the Ukrainians should have more successes in their counteroffensive. So over the coming months, their ability to retake more of their territory is greater than it was 36 hours ago. And that also means that the position of the Americans and others to be able to promote a negotiation that makes it look like Zelensky is not losing face, mm-hmm. that he is being integrated into the EU, he is getting significant amounts of money for reconstruction, all of that is real. But I agree with David that an exit ramp for Putin, which already was looking deeply problematic, is now looking a lot harder. We learned that he doesn't really have friends. Yeah. Right. I mean, Belarus, which isn't effectively sovereign, let's be clear, Prigozhin is still kind of in Russia right now in terms of Russian intelligence and Russian special forces and all the rest. But the Chinese, when Putin was facing an existential threat, said virtually nothing 
referred to it as an internal Russian matter and did not provide any support, any military support uh, to the Russians, just as they have not over the past month. Kazakhstan, you know, the Russians pulled the Kazakh president's chestnuts out of the fire a year and a half ago when there was a coup in Kazakhstan. The Kazakh president came right now and said, Russian issue, we're not touching that. Yeah. The, the tables have turned. Can you help us understand why Prigozhin turned back when he did. I think that was one of the most stunning parts of the weekend after the fact that it happened, the, the, the pace with which he said, never mind. Well, first of all, let's keep in mind that Prigozhin, who we know has been involved in the front lines, watching assassinations around some of his inner circle, I mean, feeding his troops into a meat grinder in the front lines in Bakhmut for the last few months. Right. None of us are capable of putting ourselves in the emotional state of being that Prigozhin has been facing. So I'm, I'm willing to say that the quality of his decision making is perhaps not what one would otherwise expect, right? There's no one in a position of power right now that's facing what he's been facing over the past months. He the decision to, to, to go into Moscow felt to me like a man who truly was facing desperation. Mm. He was told by the Russian government, you either let your people, force your people to sign contracts with the Ministry of Defense, right. so you lose control, or you're insubordinate to the Kremlin. And not just the MOD, but to Putin himself. What kind of a choice is that? So when he finally decided, okay, I can't do it, I'm not gonna let my people sign those, those contracts, he was already dead man walking. Mm. So at that point, he throws himself and his troops against Moscow, does whatever he can. And I, I think when he's offered a line, when he knows that fighting Moscow itself with troops that are reporting directly up to Putin, not part of the normal MOD structure, he, I think he recognizes that he's going to die. His people are going to die. And so he gives up. But I don't think anyone knew that was going to happen. Yeah. I don't think anyone had confidence that was going to happen a day ago. We also don't know what yeah. was in the dealy side. Right? right. Or didn't sign, but, you know, came or to. where he is. We don't know where he is. We don't know where Putin is, interestingly. We last heard from him on Saturday morning. Uh, there's some indication he may not be in, in the Kremlin, but we don't know. But the deal is sort of interesting because we were told it was brokered by the leader of Belarus. Maybe it was. But the fact of the matter is, presumably, Prigozhin would have wanted some guarantee that Shoigu and others or the other military leadership are out. But what does a guarantee from Putin mean? Well, I, I, I do believe not that the Wikipedia page for Wagner right now can say liquidated. It, it, it's not going to exist going forward. Thing, and that's a great thing. Yeah. That is a great thing. Stay with us. We have a lot more to talk about, so you don't get to go anywhere. Uh, Wagner's rebellion in Russia, sparking reaction from both present and potential leaders around the world, how the 2024 Republican candidates for president are responding. That's ahead. And Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin has been exiled to Belarus, but now it's unclear, as David was noting, where he actually is. We're live with more details coming up ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. It's important to note this morning, we're still actually waiting for confirmation on whether Wagner Group leader Yevgeny Prigozhin has arrived in Belarus, where he is at all, after ordering his troops to stop marching toward Moscow. According to the Kremlin, Belarusian President Alexander Lukashenko brokered a deal ending the short-term rebellion inside Russia. Now, as part of that deal, Prigozhin is set for exile in Belarus and will avoid criminal mutiny charges in Russia. But so far, 
No word on his whereabouts or all the specifics of that deal. CNN's Nick Robertson joins us live from London this morning. Uh, Nick, I've got a million questions about this, but the primary one is, how did Lukashenko help reach this deal? What do we actually know about what it is? Okay, so the Kremlin says that Lukashenko has a 20-year history of knowing Prigozhin, so the two have a connection. Uh, this doesn't pass a sniff test at face value until perhaps we know more details and we may, may never do that. There is no way that President Putin would allow a weak neighbor who is a supplicant to him, like Lukashenko, to negotiate a deal without him having some say-so in it. Prigozhin has leverage. He has leverage because he's been the Kremlin's go-to guy for setting up all sorts of business deals and, and support in the Central African Republic, in Mali, in Sudan, in Libya. These are lucrative. They're worth money to him. This is more about, this is more than just about money and power, more than just about power uh, in the inner circle around Putin. This is also about money. So uh, Shoigu uh, uh, Prigozhin has had something to negotiate with uh, his value to the Kremlin on those overseas operations. That's a currency that, that, that will erode with time. But I think uh, Lukashenko's role in this has been very much at the behest of Putin rather than a, a lone, lone operation. Uh, Nick, one of the things, you know, we haven't actually seen Prigozhin since Saturday when he seemed to be almost hailed as a hero as he was departing uh, southern Russia. Do we have any idea where he is? Do we think he's actually going to Belarus? Could he go to one of those African republics? What, what's your sense of things? Um, I think that he would feel safer further, the further from Moscow he can get right now. He won't trust the Kremlin. There are indications that the Kremlin uh, are going, are reneging on their word that he has some kind of amnesty out of this. So I think that's, uh, that's going to be a difficulty for him. Um, in Belarus, he's easily accessible to the Russian military, to, to Russian intelligence. Um, the, the value that he has uh, with these connections and assets inside Africa, that is going to erode, and he will know that. So uh, it's probably safe for him, for him to get further from Moscow, he can. He knows that. The Kremlin's reneging on it, on its word. So he, he knows he can't trust them. He knows that he's been disloyal to Putin, and Putin hates disloyalty. He knows his days are potentially numbered. Yeah. Uh, Nick Robertson, great reporting and great context, as always. Thanks so much. Thank you, Nick. Coming up, how the 2024 Republican presidential candidates are reacting to all of these developments in Russia over the weekend. And take a look at this, a twister ripping through a town outside Indianapolis, damaging at least 75 oh. homes. That's ahead. Come Terrible. On. Terrible. Well, the chaos in Russia is making its way into the 2024 conversation here in America. Some Republican candidates taking issue with the Biden administration's handling of what happened over the weekend. Watch this. I think that what this may do, John, is move us closer to a resolution uh, of this battle uh, because of Putin's weakness that's obvious now inside his own country. When there's uncertainty and chaos, that's actually an opportunity. We should have been planning with our allies. We should have been planning with the Ukrainians on how to take advantage of this opportunity. This is an opportunity for the United States and NATO uh, to, really, to really secure a position of strength uh, in Eastern Europe. Donald Trump, however, warned against cheering on upheaval in Russia, writing on Truth Social, quote, a big mess in Russia, but be careful what you wish for. Next may be far worse. Back with us, Adam Kinzinger, David Singer. You're shaking your head. Why? Oh, first off, Donald Trump is the most whiny. I, I mean, I'm just going to be straight. He's the most whiny, 
victim, but the strongest person that's always a victim of everything. And all he does is talk, he takes every crisis around the world where we need to show unity and he talks down the United States. Like he thinks, because he's only in it for himself. That's it. Like all he cares about is himself. And I see that and I'm like, this is a moment when we can have healthy debates about Russia and Ukraine, but we shouldn't be having the former president take advantage of these mm. moments to divide us. Be careful what you wish for, because our country's far worse. Yeah, What do you think? We don't kill people either. We're so innocent about Putin. He said that uh, in that interview with yeah. O'Reilly. Yeah. yeah, and so I just, it's, that's why I was shaking my head. Mm. It's just been, I'm, I'm can, just tired of can, it. And so are can I ask you specifically, given your service in the armed forces of this country, about what Will heard? Um, said that I thought that was interesting. It distinguished him from uh, the other Republican candidates who spoke on this over the weekend. But he really, on ABC yesterday, went after the Biden administration saying, you totally missed an opportunity here. You know, Secretary Blinken should not go around saying it's an internal matter. You know, we're, we're watching. Do you think he's right or wrong? So I, I like Will a lot. He's a friend of mine. Uh, I think in this case, he's incorrect. Now, I would say on the larger policy in, in Russia, I think the Biden administration has done a fairly good job, but I think they need to be more aggressive. They constantly are like, we can't cross this line, and then they do. We talked about that in the prior segment. But in terms of this moment, when you have a potential coup happening, there's only downside to putting a NATO or a U.S. face on the coup. So from Will Hurt's perspective, when he said we should be planning with our allies, I agree with that. I'm sure there was planning for what happens if these different scenarios occur. But the second we come out and well, we can't support Wagner, this is a terrorist organization, by the way, so what side are we going to take? The second we start meddling, we put a NATO and American face on it. That helps Vladimir Putin. I like what Chris Christie said. He said, basically, look, this is an opportunity to, in essence, end the war here. Uh, I just don't think this was the right time at this moment for the U.S. to get involved. David, from the administration's perspective, um, I'm going to, after the show, I'm going to ask you for who your sources actually are and what their phone <laughs> numbers are. Uh, but since we're on air right now, take us behind the scenes in terms of how they're thinking through, not just this moment, but politically on Ukraine. They are going to have to ask for more money soon. Uh, there is a political shift, I think, that's taking place with Republicans in control of the House that they publicly have said is not really going to impact how things are. What do you think is happening behind the scenes? When you talk to people, do they feel that way or do they think that there's problems right now in terms of getting more money, in terms of trying to speed up, if this is an opportunity, uh, a more expansive set of weapon systems? Well, they're a little nervous about where the money is going to come from. But, you know, it comes right out of the conversation we were just having, because this week, this past week, they had a choice. They had early warning. I don't think that early, but if we've reported by at least Wednesday, they knew something was cooking and they had to make a decision at that moment. Do they support one side or not? Now, they couldn't come in and, and support Prigozhin. He's under sanction by the United States. They certainly weren't going to come in and give early warning to Putin, right? So the only option that I can see would be to stay out of it and not play to the Putin narrative that this is all was designed by the United States and NATO. And Putin's going to push that narrative some more come the Vilnius summit, the NATO summit, in just two, two and a half weeks. Uh, so uh, that'll, that'll be right on, on, on Putin's doorstep. To your question, Phil, so what the administration would like to do is move the aid to something that looks more like the way we aid Israel, which is to say we have a 10-year agreement, Congress executes on it each year, it's not really a political debate you hear about very much. That's the model they'd like to use. 
I'm not sure they're going to get that model. And I think a lot depends on how well the counteroffensive goes. Yep. But now they have a selling point. The selling point they have is Putin's weak. Mm. Don't let up at this point. This is they have leverage with this, or at least an element of leverage right. to take in both on Capitol Hill uh, and at the NATO summit. All right, guys, stay with us. There's still a lot more we want to talk about, a lot more David sources. I'm going to try and get from him <laughs> during the commercial break. All right, what does the future hold for the Wagner Group and the leader, Evgeny Prigozhin, after leading a revolt against Vladimir Putin? Former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton, will join us. Prigozhin kept his life but lost his Wagner Group, uh, and he should be very careful around open windows in his new surroundings uh, in Belarus where he's going. That was former CIA director David Petraeus with an ominous warning for Yevgeny Prigozhin following his attempted revolt against Vladimir Putin. This morning, Prigozhin's whereabouts still unknown, though the Kremlin says he will be exiled to Belarus. And all eyes now are on the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. And what he does next, the world is asking, is Putin's iron grip on power slipping? We are joined this morning by former Trump national security advisor and former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, John Bolton. Ambassador Bolton, we're so happy to have your perspective this morning. And let's begin there. Is this the beginning of the end for Vladimir Putin? Well, I think that is a possibility. But I have to say, uh, I think all of us have to avoid strenuously uh, drawing overbroad conclusions from insufficient data. And right now, we have radically insufficient information about a whole host of things, starting with the coup and attempted coup and what happened to it and, and what the future holds. I, I have my own doubts about uh, how serious this coup effort was uh, and what kind of threat it actually posed to Putin. And I have my doubts. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it, it clearly amounts to a weakening of Putin's position. But whether it's fatal, as some people seem to think, I have my doubts about that. We just don't know enough. And I think that's one very good reason why uh, the White House has done very little here. And that's a that's a position they should hold to. You think the Biden White House has handled this well, it sounds like. I think they've done nothing, which I think is the right thing to do. Okay. Because there are some Republicans who've been calling for them to do a lot, a lot more. Will heard among them. Let me ask you this, because you told our Jake Tapper in an interview, uh, none of us will ever forget last year, you admitted to planning coups before. You, and so you have a unique perspective on this, Ambassador. Why do you think Prigozhin turned around? Well, I think that's a question that uh, we, we don't know the answer to. The Daily Telegraph in London reports that uh, the Kremlin threatened his family, uh, and, and that was enough. Uh, I think it was because the effort uh, that he had launched was doomed. And, you know, people talk about how he got within 125 miles of Mos Moscow with how many Wagner Group troops, an infantry division or squad or something in between. And by the way, how much ammunition did they have? Uh, people say there wasn't uh, really a response by the Russian military. We have reports, at least, of conflict around Varanej, where the Wagner Group itself took credit for downing several Russian helicopters and a, and a reconnaissance uh, 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 command, air, aerial command post, which indicates there was some fighting. Th this struck me as a desperation effort by Prigozhin to, to somehow keep the Wagner Group in operation. And I don't see it as a populist threat. 
to Putin. I don't see it as cracking the aura of Putin's invincibility. Give the Russian people a little bit of credit. Mm -hmm. This war against Ukraine has been going on for 16 months. Mm -hmm. You think they think that Putin is infallible? I, I don't think so. Earlier this month, you told the Kyiv Post that Putin's political position, yes, had deteriorated since the invasion. But at that time, you told them that you didn't think his regime was actually threatened. Has your position on that changed, given the events of the weekend? Well, as I say, un undeniably, his position has weakened. But you have to ask, who else is going to threaten it? The Wagner Group is a sport. Uh, it was created to give deniability to Russian military operations overseas. The only reason Wagner Group forces are back in Ukraine uh, is that is that regular Russian military forces have performed so poorly. It's not like there are other warlords out there. Mm -hmm. And let me be clear, Prigozhin is not a warlord. He's a mafioso and, uh, and, and a terrorist to boot. So, so this seems to me to be a kind of one-off. Uh, if there's a loose screw in this mix, it, it's Prigozhin. It's not Putin. Okay. So on that point about why Prigozhin made the decision or the deal that he allegedly has made with the Kremlin to go in exile in Belarus, Senator Marco Rubio, the top Republican on, on the Senate Intelligence Committee, tweeted essentially that that would have to be because the two top military officials in Russia would be ousted, that that would have had to be part of the deal for Prigozhin to agree to that. Do you think so? It is a possibility. It doesn't look like it. There have been reports, underline the word reports this morning, of pictures of Shoigu out with the troops. We don't know whether those pictures were taken before the events of the weekend or mm -hmm. after. I think we need to see uh, Putin in person. We need to see uh, Gerasimov. We need to see Shoigu in person. But don't don't underestimate uh, the the possibility Putin can turn this to his advantage. You know, hmm. it's part of the authoritarian leader playbook that when you face domestic crisis or instability, you divert the people's attention uh, by pointing to an external hmm. crisis. And they've got one that's yeah. ongoing as we speak in Ukraine. I think that's how he points to Prigozhin as a traitor and rallies the people behind the boys in the trenches facing the Ukrainian spring offensive, which, according again to reports, uh, within the past few hours, Ukrainian troops have crossed to the uh, western bank of the Dnieper River around Kherson. Not clear whether it's a probe uh, or a more serious operation, not clear whether it was planned before this weekend or not. But that's the kind of thing to watch. The, the, the critical area here now, both for Ukraine and for Russia, is not what Prigozhin's up to. The critical area is the battlefield and the counteroffensive and what this means for all of it. Uh, Ambassador Bolton, thank you for getting up early. Appreciate your time. Glad to do it. Phil. Well, we are continuing to follow all the latest developments out of Russia, but we're also paying attention to some other news, including this just in, good news for renters. Rent falling for the first time in years. We'll tell you by how much. Coming up next. Plus, NASA researchers just entered their new home for the next year, a habitat that will simulate life on Mars. We'll take you there next. Well, this morning, incredibly disturbing new video out of Georgia shows neo-Nazi extremists waving swastika flags and displaying anti-Semitic propaganda outside a synagogue during worship services. This happened in Marietta. In another incident in Macon, Georgia, police arrested a Florida man for using obscene language and shouting into a bullhorn 
after he was warned not to. Georgia officials are condemning all of this. Governor Brian Kemp says, quote, there is absolutely no place for this hate and anti-Semitism in our state. And Senator Raphael Warnock has tweeted, we must raise, we must all raise our voices loudly against this vile hate. And also this morning, a bit of encouraging news this morning for renters. Rent prices, they are dropping for the first time in years after the U.S. median rent fell last month from May 2022. Now, in May of this year, the national median asking rent was $1,739. That's down 0.5% from May last year. It is the first annual rent decline in at least three years. Rents have gradually come down from their peak in July 2022, but they are still nearly 25% higher than they were in 2019. Okay, favorite story of the morning. NASA begins preparing astronauts for life on Mars. That's right, not the moon, but Mars, by isolating four researchers in a new habitat here on Earth. This is part of a new mission. They just actually closed the door, and they'll spend the next 378 days isolated in the 1,700-square-foot space called an analog in Texas designed to recreate what they might face on Mars. They are taking part in simulated activities and science work eating like astronauts and dealing with maintenance and equipment failures as they undergo strenuous psychological uh, testing as well as physical testing. This mission will be followed by two more with different crews. Would you do it? That's, I think it's like, the, <laughs> you remember, do you remember the movie Biodome with Polly Shore? Kind of. It's great. Everybody's going to love this reference, by the way. This is going to go. This is going to buzz. This is going to buzz. It reminds me of that. No, I would never do that. That sounds terrible, but I respect those who do it on the grounds of science. Okay. Staying on serious and actually very, very important news. Russian state media says uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin remains under investigation for inciting a, quote, armed rebellion. What that could mean for the mercenary boss what we know about his current whereabouts. Before we go to break, though, snow in Utah's mountain is turning pink and reddish, a natural phenomenon that is named watermelon snow. Experts say it's because green algae bloom that thrives in the cold colors the white snow into different hues. But don't worry, there are no health concerns for water quality and anyone who comes into contact with it. And that is Harry Styles. So proud of you. Look at that. Pop culture. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. It's too soon to tell exactly where this is going to go. And I suspect that uh, this is a moving picture and we haven't seen the last act yet. But we can say this. Uh, first of all, what we've seen is extraordinary. And I think you've seen cracks uh, emerge that, that weren't there before. That was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken yesterday. Good morning, everyone. Phil Mattingly is by my side, and I'm glad you are here because what a weekend it was. What a weekend it was, and how many unanswered questions. He makes yes. a great point. There are cracks. It seems to be there are cracks, yeah. but what do those mean going forward? And what is next for Russia, for Vladimir Putin, for the war in Ukraine? The Kremlin just put out new video of Vladimir Putin after a mercenary rebellion threatened to topple his regime, but it is unclear when this video was shot. We'll take you live to Moscow for the latest. And the wife and mother of two passengers killed on the Titan submersible is speaking out. She's revealing the final moments she spent with them before the doomed expedition to see the Titanic shipwreck. And a record-breaking blowout that caught all of my attention this weekend at the Men's College World Series. The Florida Gators making history with 24 runs. This hour of CNN This Morning starts now.
But this is where we begin. The Kremlin just put out moments ago new video of Vladimir Putin following that mercenary rebellion inside of Russia that threatened to topple his regime. It's not clear. We should note when this video was actually recorded. And it doesn't mention anything that happened over the weekend. No mention of the mutiny. We haven't heard much from Putin after the most dramatic challenge ever to his 23-year rule. The mercenaries ended their march on Moscow when they were just about 120 miles away from the city. The revolt appears to be over for now. The fallout, though, likely just beginning. We don't know where the Wagner mercenary group's leader is this morning after he supposedly struck a deal with the Kremlin to stand down and go into exile in Belarus. Take a look. These are the last images we have seen of Yevgeny Prigozhin leaving a military headquarters that his troops had seized in southern Russia. Putin had vowed to punish him for treason. This right now is a look at Moscow, the city that was preparing for a siege, had security measures up. No longer, the mayor says the security restrictions imposed over the weekend are now lifted. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces say they're making gains on the battlefield in their counteroffensive as President Putin grapples with the fallout from the rebellion at home. Matthew Chance is live for us in Moscow, tracking the latest developments. And Matthew, what are we hearing from the Kremlin at this point? Oh, I mean, well, everybody seems to have disappeared at this point. Uh, we, we don't know where Yevgeny Prigozhin is. He's meant to be in Belarus, but the Belarusian officials that I've spoken to again this morning uh, have not confirmed to me uh, whether or not he's turned up. Um, and, of course, Vladimir Putin, uh, who has obviously been at the centre of this astonishing few days, this incredible weekend. Um, he hasn't appeared either, but there has been a pre-recorded message that's been put out uh, a speech by Vladimir Putin addressing the International Youth Industrial Forum, which is taking place in the Russian region of Tula. Uh, and President Putin is giving his remarks to, to, to that forum in, in pre-recorded uh, in a pre-recorded speech, but but nothing from him in terms of where he actually is now. There were concerns he may have, or you know, suspicions he may have fled from Moscow uh, during the height of this crisis. But the Kremlin says he's been working uh, here in his office in the Kremlin itself, in the Kremlin uh, compound itself. But you know, so many questions still about what will come next, what has been uh, unleashed as a result of this incredible weekend, and what Vladimir Putin will do, of course, uh, um, in the in the immediate aftermath. Been speaking to people in Russia, and I just wonder what they're saying, because that's a big question this morning. Has Putin's power over them waned at all? Um, I, I think it's almost deniable that it has. I mean, it was shocking for, for, for me and for all of us, and of course many people in Russia, to see an armed rebellion taking to the streets of, of the country, um, rebels essentially taking over an entire city, Rostov-on-Don, in, in the south of the country, and that couldn't but you know, uh, chip away at the veneer of authority that Vladimir Putin has. And so, as I say, there's relief that more bloodshed was avoided, but also anxiety about what comes next after this uh, incredible few days. For the Kremlin, these are some of the most disturbing scenes from a weekend of shocking images. On the streets of a major Russian city, Rostov-on-Don in the south, residents cheered Wagner fighters as they withdrew. Many Russians see them as heroes, not as the traitors the Kremlin paints them. And Wagner's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has become a celebrity too. Watch his supporters hail down his car 
just to shake hands. The Kremlin says he's now moving to Belarus next door, but it's unclear if this is the last we'll see of him. What is definite, though, is a sense of relief, at least here in the Russian capital. It's calm now, but in the mayhem of the weekend, Moscow was on high alert. Military checkpoints on the outskirts of the city, residents bracing for Wagner fighters to enter and for the confrontation that never came. It was really uneasy yesterday, says Andre. But look now, people are walking in the streets and it's all good. Let's hope it'll stay peaceful, he adds. But even here, this sympathy for Prigozhin's unprecedented challenge, his tirades against the conduct of the war in Ukraine, appears to have struck a popular chord. I think it was an expression of an opinion, says Oleg, another resident of Moscow, an opinion of a powerful person who wants some justice and clarity. The belief Prigozhin should be listened to is widely shared here. But that's not what the Kremlin wants to hear. Vladimir Putin hasn't appeared in public since making his angry pledge on Saturday, filmed behind the scenes by state television, to punish those responsible for what he called an armed mutiny, the biggest challenge to his authority in 23 years of power. But now that challenge has been made, there are growing concerns about what a defensive President Putin, stung by the events of this weekend, will do next to stay in power. Right, well, just to give you an indication of the mood in the country, I've got uh, one of the uh, local newspapers here, Moskovsky uh, Komsomolets. Here, here it is. The, there's a little picture uh, of Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, up in the corner there, the man behind the armed rebellion, uh, it says. The headline uh, here says, Prigozhin will go, but the problem uh, remains. It says next to it, Russia displays its vulnerability to the world and to itself. And so uh, you get a good sense there that although there's relief that you know, more bloodshed was avoided, there is a lot of anxiety about what comes next here in Russia. Indeed, the key question. Matthew Chance, great reporting. Thank you. All right, joining us now at the table, CNN Global Affairs Analyst Kim Dozier, CNN Senior Political Commentator, former Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and former CIA Chief of Russia Operations Steve Hall. Uh, Steve, I want to start with you because uh, while it was clearly a savvy PR move to elevate the International Youth Industrial Forum, uh, in terms of the, the photos, the, the pictures, the video that was released by the Kremlin today, um, you were shaking your head and kind of chuckling when that was played, when Matthew laid that out. I think the big question is what Matthew was detailing at the end of his piece. What does Putin do now? We've never seen a threat like this or a fracture like this in his 20 plus years of leadership. How does he respond to this? Well, first, I think what you're seeing, what we saw Matthew, uh, you know, bring up uh, in terms of the state of people in Moscow, what they're saying on the streets, uh, some of the stuff in the newspapers, this is the initial cleanup mode that Putin's going to get into. So he's basically going to try to tell everybody, uh, look, it's it's all OK. This is all behind us. You know, nobody's going to fall from power. But I really think that the key thing that Putin has to be most concerned about right now is not whether people are going to rise up in the streets. Yes, there was some populist sort of sentiment that was thrown in Prigozhin's way over the weekend. But what he's really got to be concerned about are these people that I refer to as the Siloviki. These are the close advisors to Putin who are also watching him for cracks. And if there is much more weakness, if things get much worse, I've got to think that, you know, people in the Siloviki, guys like Patrushev, for example, are going to say, 
do we need to continue with this guy? Are we going to get another coup next month? At some point, that, might, that worm might turn. You were chief of CIA Russia operations, so you have a unique perspective and vantage point to all of this. Why do you think Prigozhin turned around so quickly, so close to Moscow? There are so many questions. I mean, and, and hopefully this will come out uh, as, as the weeks go by, but that's a key one because look how close he was. You know, how, does he all of a sudden wake up and say, what am I doing? It's right. almost like he'd been sobered up or something. I think what happened was he, he must have been confronted with some stuff from Putin, from, Mos- from Moscow, where he basically said, I can no longer do this. It might have been the idea of having to fight his way to Moscow through guys like Ramzan Kadyrov and the Chechens, who are absolutely crazy and who would have been the yeah. first guys I think Putin would have said, you know, get in the way of these people as opposed to, you know, Right, Russian and they were regulars. offering support for yeah. Putin. Kim, actually, to that point, I think there was an assumption at various points of the week, and we talked about this during one of the breaks, where he was operating, Prigozhin was operating from power. He was operating through, uh, with, with perhaps a, a level of uh, substantive power that wasn't necessarily understood beforehand. As the week went on, it seemed like that probably wasn't the case. If you looked at the dynamics of what led to this moment, what was happening to Wagner Group in terms of their contract status, what was happening with other private military uh, groups that had been moving into places where they were, do you feel like this was an emotional response rather than a power play? Well, part of it was a power play because Prigozhin was about to have to sign a contract that put his forces underneath the control of the Russian military. But part of it seemed to be this drunk with emotion or drunk response um, where he just said, you know, you hit my guys, I'm charging for Moscow. And the world got to see that the Russian military didn't stand in his way, at least initially. Why? I mean, he was seen as having coffee with the commanders in mm-hmm. Southern Command in Rostov-on-Don. Almost Why? welcomed. Yeah. Uh, he is a folk hero. And he's a folk hero that Moscow allowed, that Putin allowed to be constructed that way. The Russian everyman that every man wants to be. The guy that you want to go drinking with. The guy that goes and hangs out with the crack forces and the front lines Mm -hmm. and handles some of Russia's toughest fights. So to take on that guy, that makes Putin seem like he's one of the dark-suited people who... um, you know, the, the bribe takers, the people that everyone in Russia is jealous of, that send their kids um, outside the country so they don't get drafted, that get the expensive holidays. Uh, you know, in that equation, if you're Putin, you don't want to be seen as with the rich guys as opposed to with this populist hero. So we just got new sound in from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg speaking from Lithuania. Let's play that and get your reaction on the other side. We see the, the weakness of the, of the Russian regime, and, and it also demonstrates how, uh, how uh, difficult and dangerous it is for uh, President Putin to be reliant on mercenaries. That has actually turned against him. And uh, it also demonstrates that uh, uh, it is hard to predict exactly what will now happen in the next days and weeks. But uh, we should not make the mistakes that we are underestimating uh, the Russians. Let me first off say he's been a, a great NATO leader. Uh, he's been out there, uh, probably one of the more hawkish or I guess mm-hmm. kind of clear spoken NATO leaders. He has a very important job bringing the coalition together, and he's correct. I mean, look, the interesting thing from from this weekend, as we talked about, where was the Russian army? I think this exposed what we've basically already known. We've seen in this war is 
Russian army really is not that good. The Russian army may not have quite the forces to, to muster that we thought they did. I mean, keep in mind, very terrible infrastructure across Russia. Russia's very big, so you want to move forces anywhere, it takes forever. Kadyrovs, yeah, they can be tough, but they're also called the TikTok brigade for a reason, because they always stay out of the fight and take pictures of themselves pretending to be in it. They were taking pictures of themselves at some bridge in the middle of nowhere this time. And so I think... The thing that came out of this is that if we continue to support the Ukrainian military and we get out of this idea that we have to give Vladimir Putin an off-ramp, we have to give him honor, and we just say, look, we have to have a victory for Ukraine. We don't need Ukraine invading Russia, of course. Nobody even talking about it. Ukraine isn't even talking about that. But we need Ukraine to win this war. It may be much more easier to win than we think. Certainly it is winnable. And frankly, that's how we stop this continued Vladimir Putin fear and this continued fear of Russia is to have them actually lose in Ukraine. And just from a tactical standpoint, also, you know, they were 120 miles away. Prigozhin's forces were 120 miles away from Moscow. Could they have gotten the Chechens hopscotched ahead of him in time to keep fighting from breaking out um, on Moscow's outskirts? audible to those inside? One of the things that, of course, as, as Steve can explain to us in detail, the centers of Russian political power are the populated areas, the big cities. If this happens in the hinterland, Rostov-on-Don, well, you can keep that off of the front pages uh, for the most part. But if there was fighting on the outskirts of Moscow, that would damage Putin irrevocably in the eyes of all of his people. Okay, we, we, have, we have to go, but one quick thing before we let you go, because of your expertise, is Evgeny Prigozhin still around in three or four weeks? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, he's got to be handled very delicately, and we don't even know where he is today, as far as as far as we can tell. Uh, I think eventually, though, uh, certainly, I think he's at least for the time being left the political scene. Will he actually leave the physical realm? Will he, you know, slip on ice or something like that? Yeah. I think it's a good chance. Yeah, uh, it's it's fascinating developments across the board, geopolitically and uh, domestically. And we have Gany Prigozhin, guys. Thanks so much. Um, Obviously, one of the questions, what will Putin do next after the revolt in Russia? We're joined by the former Russian foreign minister. Coming up next. Also, a tornado ripping through a town outside of Indianapolis, damaging at least 75 homes. Look at that. More on that ahead. As the world continues to analyze what happened in Russia over the weekend, it's worth taking a step back to 1991, leading up to former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev's final days in office. This was Larry King on CNN. Take a listen. The incredible sudden turn of events, a struggle for the very soul of the Soviet Union unfolding in Moscow right now. Gorbachev and Glasnost are out. A new wave of civil warring is in. In a coup engineered by communist hardliners, Mikhail Gorbachev has been deposed to power, and his one-time rival Boris Yeltsin may be the only hope for a democratic future. Soviet hardliners held Gorbachev captive for two days, but the coup attempt backfired, and people took to the streets of Moscow. Now, this iconic image of soon-to-be President Boris Yeltsin was taken of him speaking to crowds in Moscow atop a tank. This failed coup signaled the end of the Soviet Union, which dissolved later that year. Our next guest was the Russian foreign minister at the time and continued on in this role under former Russian President Boris Yeltsin. He was forced out in 1996. Joining me now is Andrei Kozarev. Uh, sir, thanks so much for, for joining me. I want to start with the idea of uh, what your read is right now on why this fight spilled into the public and took such a dramatic turn over the weekend. 
Well, uh, there is a very little uh, comparison, actually, with 1991, uh, because that was about political future, political choice of Russia. And uh, the people uh, went out. We were in the so-called White House. We were uh, surrounded by tanks, but... We were also surrounded by crowd of people who wanted political choice and the political change for for democracy, for future, for better relationship with the West, and so on. This time, it's totally devoid of any political agenda. It's a wolf's pack fighting for prey, you know, for easy prey. That's one thing we learned. And there is a alpha uh, kind of male there in this pack, but there are others who want and will want. If it is not uh, Prigozhin, then there will be others who want to, to have better piece of pie and be the alpha one. So that's uh, lesson number one. Uh, they are all in the, on the same agenda, the agenda of the war, the agenda of money and power, no political ideological differences between them, and they will continue the war as long as the West tolerates actually that and does not give Ukraine uh, the most powerful weapons to shorten the war. Can I ask you, though, you know, you made a, a a point to my colleague Christiane Amanpour over the weekend, that this is actually no different than what we've seen throughout the course to some degree of Putin's time and power of the infighting, the, the battles that go on underneath. What's different now is the information time we're in, the fact people are seeing it spill into public view. Do you think that changes how this particular fight ends as opposed to the others that just seem to be underneath everything? Uh, not much. Uh, uh, Putin has, uh, and Kremlin, the Kremlin has uh, full control of the propaganda and of a narrative on the uh, every actually available, uh, except uh, internet uh, media, uh, and uh, internet is only for, mostly for young people, and it's difficult also to penetrate and to get uh, some news from abroad or, or opposing news because uh, they have uh, trolls and all, all other ways to control the internet uh, information too. So uh, Russian people has very uh, simple and very little idea of what is happening. And this is police state. It is not, does not mean that they are mighty state, but they are police state which is able to control uh, public. So public politics are not so important there. And that's the mistake the West makes mostly when they think that Putin has uh, deadlines, that Putin has to count with some kind of... He only threatened by his wolf pack, uh, the contenders, but that would not change much even if he is overturned. And also what we saw these days in Moscow is that the only red line for either of them, for Putin, 
is his personal survival. Nothing mm -hmm. matters for him. He was prepared to see uh, the, the, the military in Moscow, and he probably went someplace else. So for him, the red line is not a defeat in Ukraine. For him, uh, the red line is his personal power and personal survival. Uh, last one. We only have a few seconds left. What do you think happens to Evgeny Prigozhin? Uh, I don't know, and to tell you frankly, I don't care. I, I understand that it's a show and people are fascinated with that. But it doesn't matter, actually. Who is Prigozhin? Prigozhin is a clown, a political clown, and a, a you know, servant of Putin. Well, is so, Putin weaker uh, now because I mean, of what we saw, though? One, yeah, I mean, he he just wanted to survive. Uh, the uh, the Ministry of Defense probably took an upper hand inside Krem the Kremlin fight in in fight, and uh, they demanded that he uh, kind of surrendered. He did not, and he tried his best uh, to use his military force. But again, like anyone else there, he is. Um, very opportunistic, and he does not want to risk his life. That's right. important. That's also his red line. Nothing like, you know, loyalty to his troops or loyalty to Russia or right. to, to whatever. His only loyalty is his personal, uh, personal survival. Yeah. Andrei Kozarev, we really appreciate the perspective and the experience, sir. Thanks so much. Thank you. Fascinating to hear from him, given his history there. We'll continue to follow the latest developments in Russia, of course. Also news here in the United States. Nearly 40 million people are under heat alerts across the South this morning. We'll take you live to Texas. And more than half of New York City's third through eighth graders are not reading proficiently. Now, school officials are about to undergo the most significant curriculum overhaul in decades. We spoke to teachers and students about what that could look like. Probably when I'm 13, I, I, I can read those big books. All right, this morning, new video shows a tornado that swept through Bargersville, Indiana, Sunday. You can see it right there, leaving a trail of destruction roughly three miles long. Now, the funnel clown ripped through what looks like apartment homes. Officials say at least 75 homes are damaged, and the storm took down an apartment complex that was under construction. Multiple customers are now without power as responders are searching for victims and clearing trees from the roads. Officials have set up an emergency shelter at a local middle school for those that need assistance. Also this morning, nearly 40 million people across the South are facing oppressive heat that officials warn will become increasingly dangerous and maybe deadly. Texas could see heat indices exceeding 120 degrees today. Now officials are scrambling as the punishing heat is putting unprecedented strain on the state's power grid. Rosa Flores is live outside a cooling center in Houston. Rosa, you were with us last week talking about this excessive heat, and it just continues. You know, and we're expecting more of it all this week. Triple digits here in the state of Texas. But let me, let me start here in Houston because the highs today are expected at 101 with a heat index between 108 and 115. Now, that's the feels like 
temperature. That includes and factors in the humidity. That's why it feels so oppressive here in Houston. But Houston is not alone. Take a look across the state. Cities like Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Austin, Corpus Christi, also in the triple digits all week long. Corpus Christi with a heat index of 116. Now, all of this has prompted cities across this state to open cooling centers like the one that you see behind me here in the city of Houston. Now, this gives a little reprieve to individuals who don't have access to air conditioning during the day. It gives them a few hours where they can come into the centers and cool off. All of this, of course, tests the power grid here in the state of Texas, which is unique because it's not connected to the rest of the country. ERCOT, the operator of the electric grid, issuing a weather watch that doesn't expire until Friday. So it goes through Friday. I talked to the expert who predicted the grid failure back in 2021 here in the state of Texas, and he says that based on what he's looking at now, the power grid is expected to hold this week given these triple-digit temperatures, but he says that Texas is not out of the woods. Uh, Texans have not spent enough money to build new generation really over the last 20 years. And with the growing population, the growing economy, it, it really has been just a matter of time before we get tapped out on days when we really desperately need the electricity. Now, Poppy, to his point about so many people moving to the state of Texas, and you know, the state of Texas pats itself on the back because everybody wants to move to Texas, but you gotta think about it this way. All of these individuals that are moving to Texas, they don't pack their infrastructure, they don't pack their power grid, they don't pack their schools, they don't pack their roads. It's up to Texas to invest in these individuals. And that's the point from this expert, is that Texas needs to do more to fortify and also uh, to make sure that the power grid is resilient for all those people that are moving to Texas. Absolutely, for safety, especially in temperatures like this. Rosa Flores, thank you. All right, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, she of 18 terms in Congress, calling for term limits for Supreme Court justices. Plus, spineless. That's what a prominent conservative retired federal judge is calling his party, the Republican Party, in a scathing rebuke of Donald Trump. That's ahead. Well, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi putting Supreme Court Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas on blast after the court's credibility has been called into question. Pelosi was interviewed by former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki following news reports that revealed Alito and Thomas received lavish gifts and luxurious trips that they failed to disclose. Here's what she said. It's shameful how Thomas, as Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, have been so cavalier about their violations of what would be expected of a justice of the Supreme Court. The president formed a commission. They did not recommend expansion of the court. That shouldn't be the end of it. But there certainly should be term limits. There certainly should be term limits. And if nothing else, there should be some ethical rules that would be followed. Now, Saki also pointed out that a recent Quinnipiac poll found that just 30 percent of voters approved of the court. To that, Pelosi, who represents in Congress, which has an even lower approval rating, responded, that seems high. 
Well, a stunning repudiation of the Republican Party by a very prominent lifelong Republican, former federal judge Michael Ludig, who was once named by Senator Ted Cruz as an ideal Supreme Court nominee, is blasting his party for its support of former President Trump. Here's what he writes in The New York Times, quote, the Republican spineless support for the past two years convinced Mr. Trump of his political immortality giving him the assurance that he could purloin some of the nation's most sensitive national security secrets upon leaving the White House and preposterously insist that they were his to do with as he wished, all without facing political consequences. Now, Ludwig also testified last summer, you'll remember very prominently, in the January 6th hearings. Adam Kinziger, back with us, obviously, a key part of those hearings and that investigation. He joins us also uh, Senior contributor at Axios, Margaret Tollov. Good morning. Thank you guys very much for being here. I've been wanting to talk to you about this all morning yeah. because I admire Ludig's, throughout all of this, willingness to speak out, speak against the party that is so critical and so core to him because of what he has seen. The fact that he wrote this in the Times in this moment, what did you make of it? I mean, it's huge. So Judge Ludig is, I've gotten to know him since the yeah. hearings. He's a very honorable man. He is very pained by what the party has become, as I am. I mean, this is a party we grew up thinking, you know, it was committed to the rule of law. It's all about America. Um, and it's turned into this American first nationalism, the rule of law so far as it can be used to our advantage. So I thought it was a scathing in a very good way editorial. And it's putting into focus the fact that as Republicans, and particularly if, as current members of Congress or, or any office that takes an oath to the Constitution of the United States, I mean, if you, in the quiet of your room, looking in the mirror, can say to yourself that you don't think that Donald Trump is violating the oath, you don't think supporting him is violating the oath, then more power to you. But I think the vast majority of these people know that this is destructive for democracy. And Judge Ludic, who is about as conservative as it comes, right. about as much of a conservative judicial person as it comes, is, is willing to put that all on the line. Margaret, to that point, I think one of the, the I think fascinating elements, to be frank, after the last six years, but certainly over the course of the last couple of weeks and months, is when you talk to a lot of Republicans, behind the scenes, they will acknowledge what Judge Ludig said in his op-ed, what Congressman Kinzinger said publicly um, uh, now and while he was still in Congress, but they don't come out and say it publicly. Do you believe that that holds and that is what leads the former president to once again be the Republican nominee? Well, Phil, it's a really important question because I think at the beginning of uh, Donald Trump's presidency or even in the lead up to that first uh, election of his, that may have been true. But now you're just seeing that the the core of the GOP base is constituted really differently. So I think what is Judge Ludig trying to accomplish here? Uh, it is not to change the hearts and minds of the masses of the new base of the Republican Party. It's to influence the GOP primary. It is to take those institutionalist Republicans who were kind of uh, attracted to the party for the Reagan and Bush years uh, and to say, it's not your Republican Party anymore. It's to shape the primary or if Donald Trump were to be the nominee again to shape the general election. Um, Congressman Kinzinger, while we have you, I want to ask you about something else that I think is really interesting, and it follows on what we've been talking about in terms of what happened in Russia this weekend, and that is what happens now with the war on Ukraine. And Phil brought up earlier the question of asking Congress for more Republican-led House for more money. And is that going to be challenging? Are they going to get the money? You think the Biden administration could do something a little bit differently that would really yeah. help? What? 
So I think the Biden administration needs to do a better job laying out to the American public, first off, the reason for us supporting Ukraine over and over. Don't just rely on surrogates. But secondly, talk about what is actually made up in this aid package. I think there's a lot of perception, and I dealt with it in talking about foreign aid as a congressman. There's a lot of perception that we're just writing a giant check. We're just giving it to Ukraine and saying, good luck. The reality is a lot of that money is a value we assess to equipment that we're actually getting ready to rotate out of our stocks. It's a value to replace that equipment. Some of it is a value put on putting troops in Europe. We have a cost for that as well. And some of it is money that we give to Ukraine to spend on American weaponry, as they need to say, made by Americans, you know. And so they need to do a better job of explaining that this hundred some billion dollars really isn't quite that because, again, here's some old stocks of weapons we have, including HIMARS. We're giving them to them, but we have to, according to Congress, put a value on that. And that's where some of that money comes from. Margaret, I do want to ask you about uh, the sound we played right before we brought you guys in from former Speaker Pelosi uh, going after the, the Justice of the Supreme Court. Look, it has become a very uh, hot-button political issue. There's no question about that on both sides of the aisle. It has been that way for several years now. Um, when you hear Pelosi say things like term limits, say things like their approval rating is probably much lower than it is, what's your view of where the court actually sits uh, in terms of an institution right now? The court is an extremely weakened institution. Every institution in America uh, has declined in terms of people's trust. Uh, but the Supreme Court historically is supposed to transcend all of that. And of course, you can imagine the trouble with term limits is it, you could argue that it would make things better. It also might completely further politicize uh, the mm -hmm. Supreme Court. Every institution in America is weakened right now. The Supreme Court was supposed to be uh, one of those institutions like the military uh, or, you know, the church that binds people together when everything else unravels. Uh, when you don't have that, it just shows you how polarized, how really deeply polarized the country is and how difficult it is to pull Americans together about idea broad ideas of right and wrong, justice, you yeah. know, everything from Russia to uh, to civil rights back at home. Yeah. It's notable because it's the, the key thing that the Chief Justice John Roberts said since he came on the court that he didn't want was a yep. perception of a politicized court. Remember, famously, this is not a Trump, these are not Trump justices, these are not Obama justices, and now that's what most Americans think of it. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Adam Kinzinger, Congressman Kinzinger. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Well, hit after hit after hit. I know Poppy was watching. The Florida Gators making history at the College World <laughs> Series. Florida's got 24 runs in this game. The most ever in a College World Series game. Well, tomorrow, students in the nation's largest school district, right here in New York City, will attend their last day of school for the year. It comes after city officials said more than half of students in third through eighth grade cannot read at proficient levels. So in response, a district is getting ready to overhaul the school's reading programs starting next year. Our national correspondent, Athena Jones, who covers education so well and so importantly for, the, for this program, and I really appreciate it, you got in the schools with the kids, with the teachers. Yes, you know, this is a real concern. We reported earlier this year that just one in three fourth graders nationwide was at or above proficiency in reading. And as you just mentioned, in New York City, the numbers are much worse with more than half of third through eighth graders not proficient. That is why New York City is changing the way children are taught to read. And they're using a new curricula starting next year. And they're providing extra help 
for some of the most vulnerable students. At Brooklyn Gardens Elementary School in East New York, Good morning. Hola, ¿cómo estás? kids who are falling behind in reading get extra help. Can you tell me, Jaden? S-H. S-H. What sound does S make? <gasps> oh, you already put them together. Like six-year-old Jaden Jacobs. Jaden's word is cup. Cup? Mm-hmm. C-U-P. Mm -hmm. The first grader began the school year reading at a kindergarten level. Then the school launched a high-impact tutoring program in January. How old are you, Jaden? I'm older. Six. Three times a week, Jaden meets in a small group with a tutor from Brain Trust, a company that relies on the science of reading using evidence-based methods, like teaching kids to sound out word and letter combinations. I would like you right here to write the word wish. Up three. Done. His reading scores have risen some 60%, and he's now at grade level. And I like reading because that's my thing. I like reading comic books, regular books, and hard books, but not insane. Because insane might have a lot of have, have a lot of words. Probably when I'm searching, I, I, I can read those big books. And With new skills has come new confidence. His excitement for school is phenomenal. He loves to come to school as he's reading. Um, he's able to decode words, right? And I'm like, how did you know that? He says, oh, I know. So he'll say, mommy, I could do that. I, I learned this in school. City officials say 51% of New York elementary students are not reading proficiently. And the problem is worse for children of color, with 63% of Latino students and 64% of black students not proficient. So New York City public schools are changing the way reading is taught across the city, ditching less effective methods like guessing words based on the context of a sentence. This is the beginning of something new. In the most significant overhaul since the early 2000s, the NYC Reads program will standardize instruction, requiring schools to choose one of three approved curricula. The goal? To ensure that every child is on grade level no later than third grade. Reading is everything, literacy is everything, and it's not just reading, it's writing, it's also language development. It's a massive undertaking for the nation's largest school system, with over a million students across more than 1,800 schools. About half the city's 32 districts will begin the new curricula this fall, the other half in fall 2024. But Brooklyn Gardens has gotten a head start. It began implementing one of the new reading curricula just before the pandemic. That's because this majority black and Latino school is in a district deemed in need of improvement. Many students' families are struggling economically. Nearly 30 percent live in temporary housing, and the school qualifies for federal funding to help with interventions like tutoring. So the most vulnerable children don't fall further behind. Because a lot of our students are not on grade level, we have a curriculum that supports students in reading and writing. Every single student who was a part of this program made progress. One of Brain Trust founders says more cities and states should follow New York's lead on overhauling reading instruction and providing extra support to students who need it. The important aspect right now is to recognize what does work and double down. So a lot of states are moving towards the science of reading, but not fast enough. I think when the biggest district in the country focuses on the science of reading and correlates that to the data and the results of literacy, that is a North Star for every other city to take notice.
So this is really important work, important changes that are happening. And this is amid more concerning news about learning loss due to the pandemic. We learned from the nation's report card just last week, it found that uh, between this school year and the 2019-2020 school year, student test scores fell in reading by four points. That is on top of a seven-point decline over the last decade. U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona has called this learning loss the devastating impact of the pandemic. And the administration says it's going to take years of effort and investment to fix this and to catch all these kids up. And it's just so important. I'm so glad you are staying on this reporting. Bring us more as you have it. And thank you. It was encouraging to see. All right. For your morning moment, which Poppy's been My idea. Uh, the College World Series between Florida and LSU will come down to a winner-take-all game three tonight after last night's absolute beatdown by the hands of Florida batters. Now, following a heartbreaking loss in extra innings in game one, the Gators pretty much rewrote the entire Omaha record book on the way to a 24-4 blowout. Even in the series at one game apiece, that's the most runs ever scored in a College World Series game. Florida also tied the record for the most hits with 23. Six of those hits were home runs, the biggest coming right there from sophomore outfielder Ty Evans with that grand slam in the third inning. It's the first time that's ever happened in the finals, and the Gators never really looked back after that. 20-run margin of victory tied for the second largest at the event with a win tonight. Florida can win their first national title since 2017. LSU, meantime, has a chance to claim the school's seventh title since 2009. You almost <laughs> made it, right? Your thoughts? Didn't you? We lost in the Super Regionals. Why are you trying to make it I feel like know it was... Su- when he told Congressman Kinzinger he lost in the Super Regionals, Congressman Kinzinger said, that just means you didn't go. Not wrong. Sorry. He's not wrong. <laughs> Thanks for that. Congrats to Florida. He's got to play game three. We got to go. CNN News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.